A reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 4 through verse 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, the 25 of us or so who went on the men's retreat, and I think we had a good time, I learned that you don't want me on your axe-throwing team. <laughs> we went axe-throwing yesterday afternoon, and I'm terrible at it. So I would, yeah, I, I would be eaten by the bears or the wolves before I got an axe out there. But it was fun. Um, and we spent wonderful time with the Lord and uh, each other. Um, I had this experience when I was driving down to the retreat, actually, on Friday. I had sort of a funny thing. I left about four o'clock or so to get there in time to join people for dinner, and uh, I was driving west on 66. So, uh, by the time I got to 81, which I've done many times, like most of y'all have, it was 4.30, quarter of five, sun is setting, and uh, I was thinking about the sermon and other things, and my mind was really occupied, but you know, it's a pretty straight shot, so I was just, I got onto 81, and right after I got onto 81, I thought, did I go north or south? You know, it just kind of splits, but I, was, I knew I was at 81, yet you can't stay on 66 at that point. You've got to get off. And so I had this moment. It wasn't like a huge deal, but it's just inconvenient. But I just thought, ah, which way did I get off? I'm on 81. Which way am I? So I, I kind of carry a little bit of a map in, in my head, and I thought, well, okay, if I'm headed south, right, so looking at the map to, in my mind right now, I'm headed south, setting sun should be on my right, right? So I'm kind of, generally speaking, that should, well, 
man, that setting sun is on my left, totally on my left. And I'm like, ah, oh, bummer. I got to go to Winchester and turn around, and it's just bummer. And so I, I was just like, how could I do that? It didn't seem like I did that, but the sun doesn't lie, right? It's setting. And so in a minute or two, I come to the Strasbourg exit. Now, the Strasbourg exit is south. If you've been on 81, that's the first exit. It's pretty close there. So all of a sudden, I had these two fixed points that were, my, the sun is still on my left, which if I'm headed north and the sun is setting, it'll be on my left, and the sun is on my left, and Strasbourg exit is there. So now I have two fixed points that are, but one of them's lying to me. One of them is wrong. Now, is the sun wrong, or is like Strasbourg wrong? See? See, he's going to sign such a big contract, he can build his own exit, right? That's a nationals joke. If you don't know it, don't worry about it. But anyway, so Strasbourg is there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm definitely headed south, but what is going on with the sun? So it took me a minute to try to reconcile these things, and I figured the exit's probably safe. And what I didn't realize until I stopped and got down to Harrisonburg, and I pulled out my map on my phone, and maybe you knew this, but I didn't, is that 81 which you think, I think of as heading southwest, right, through Virginia, right where 66 comes, it turns northwest for about two miles. I don't know why, but they built it. So here you are coming down 81 southwest, and it goes like this for just a brief time, because as soon as I said, now I'm headed the right direction, I'm not going to get off the exit and turn around, all of a sudden, the bend in the road starts, so I'm like, ah, I see what's happening, and the sun moves from my left until about five minutes later. It's completely where it should have been on my right, and I'm headed south, but you know, it's southerly, it's winter, and the, sun, you know, the sun's south. It was just that confluence. So, I tell you all this to tell you this, is that what Hebrews is trying to tell us is it's trying to reconcile two things that we see as Christians, that if there is a God who is so good and loves us so much, let's call it the sun, sitting there, why is life so doggone hard? That's the exit that's in the wrong direction. Why, if God loves me so much, are things so hard? And the author of Hebrews is trying to write to people to reconcile what seems like two fixed points that are in contradiction to each other. And so, especially in Hebrews 11 and 12, where he's talking about faith, and he brings in the idea that faith doesn't always mean everything is smooth. And we talked about the incredible difficulties that people who walked in faith experience. And then he begins in chapter 12 to look at two things. And he says, compares this dichotomy, this, uh, this apparent contradiction in two ways. And he says, you've got discipline happening, and then you've got shaking happening. And this is so important for Christians to get a hold of for us that I'm going to break into two. We're going to talk about discipline this morning and shaking next week, but they share this idea of how do we look at this hardship. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the need for discipline. We're going to look at the method of discipline. And when I say need, I really mean the, the motivation that God has for disciplining us. So we'll call it the motivation for discipline, the method that he uses for discipline, and then the payoff of discipline. So we're going to tackle those three things. So pretty evident as you read chapter 12 of Hebrews, when Lori was reading, you, you may have picked up, it's uh, very evident 
that he says for discipline, in verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son, and that would be son or daughter, the word could be either, every child whom he receives. Overtly, explicitly in verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons and daughters. So, first thing, what's the, what's the motivation for discipline? We all know this as our own. You don't treat other people's children as you do your own children. There is a mark when you invest in them that says, you are my own. And just like sometimes your own children would say, can't I be someone else's child? Have you ever had a child, I wish so-and-so family would adopt me? Have you ever had that happen? And they mean in the best sense. And I, we, you know, in the sense probably of, I just, you know, it's wonderful out there. I always tell them, well, the reason you feel that way is because not, you're not theirs. They don't discipline you. And so it's a natural instinct for us to sometimes feel like we would say to God, can't you love me a little less? <laughs> I, I know you love me, but the way this discipline happens, I, wouldn't it be nice? And so the motivation we've got to realize and understand is love. Your legitimacy of your, of your adoption as, as true sons and daughters is here represented. So that leads us, okay, so what's the method of discipline? And this, this is frankly problematic because most all of us, I assume, were disciplined at some level as children, right? And for some of us, it was not good. Some of us probably look back on some of the ways our parents disciplined us, and I know times were different in bygone era, but some, some of the discipline was inappropriate. It was not given in a way that was loving. Some of us had tremendously loving parents and disciplined us well, and sometimes it's a hodgepodge and it's a mix. And so we carry into this idea of discipline because often what we think of is discipline equals punishment. When you say, I'm going to discipline you, what they really mean is I'm going to punish you. And that's not the same thing. It can, punishment can be a part, can be a piece of it, but it's not the same. My own family discipline is a, a little strange, and I didn't realize that, of course, until I talked to other people. My father was an attorney, and so discipline was court, and I learned uh, early on to defend. He would hold court, and so you'd sit down, and you'd have to uh, uh, bring, he'd bring the offense against the family, against humanity, whatever you had done would be brought before him, and he would say, plead your case. So as a five- and six-year-old, I learned words like mitigating circumstances, <laughs> party of the first part, all those kind of things, and, uh, and we would uh, plead our case, and then he would, you know, he would question us, so he gave us a chance to, to say why. Uh, it was good in that you didn't feel like he was reacting harshly, but then he, we'd talk about the sentence, you know, life in prison or whatever you did, and you would negotiate your sentence, and so if you you know, he said, well, it, it, you know, the crime does this. And he well, I'd, I'd really rather have this. And he said, oh, and, and then when it was all said and done, he was both, you know, he's judge, jury, and executioner. And whatever, the, the, whatever that was meted out, you'd get. And it was done publicly. The, the whole family would be there. And so I didn't realize how weird that was <laughs> until I'm like, yeah, my dad just like spanked me. I'm like, 
after the after the, after the um the trial. It's like what? And the guy, my, you know, my son's like, I don't even know what I did. But you know, dad was like, ah. And so, our the, the reason I say discipline is problematic is that we bring in with us this idea of discipline from all different ways. Let me say, and and, and the writer of Hebrews says, look, your own fathers. Because fathers in that day meted out the discipline, he says, your own fathers disciplined you and we respected them. He's assuming that the discipline given was good and right. I don't want to make that assumption, but let's go with in the scripture for you. I don't want to make that assumption, but for the scripture, he's saying, look, our parents did the best job they could. They weren't always right. They didn't always meet out the right discipline, but God does. God's discipline is never done quickly. It's never done out of anger. And so if you carry with you a sense of, well, I I don't want to discipline my children. I don't want to receive the kind of discipline I received because there was anger involved. There was, I, I just want to say to you, that's not biblical discipline. The method of discipline God uses, one of them, there's, there's a number, but one of them that he's dealing with here in Hebrews is, is difficult circumstances of the hardship. We went through in Hebrews 10 and 11 and 12 some of the things that they had suffered. They were suffering economically because they were Christians. They were uh, identifying with believers who were uh, persecuted by uh, the, Ro- by the uh, Roman authorities. And so he's saying, look, there is a hardship that comes And you can either see this as a way for God that somehow God has left you, but that's not the case at all. He's proving what you are a legitimate child because he's disciplining you. So now we get to this, what what does that discipline look like? What does it look like? Well, besides parental discipline, Paul looks at, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you've got your Bible, you can open 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He uses another metaphor, not the disciplining of parents to children, but the disciplining of an athlete. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I discipline my body. I we all know that, right? You've seen the karate kid, wax on, wax off, right? Paint the fence. It's the greatest metaphor because what happened? Was it pleasant for Daniel San to go through that, right? No. And he, if you've seen the movie, his attitude is he's doing all these things is I'm just doing pointless work, repetition over and over again for what end? And then when the time comes and he's ready, he wants to learn to to do karate, and all the discipline that he's put in become the karate moves, right? 
In many ways, it's a great metaphor because God is going to, if you get into the school of discipline with him, the school of training, of maturity as a believer, you're going to go through times when you don't know why the heck you're going around the mountain as the children of Israel did again and again and again. This repetition to begin to build your spiritual perseverance so that when the day comes when things are really hard, your faith doesn't fail and crumble on you. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to an outstanding passage in the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sort of sermons that Moses gives, talks to the children of Israel. They're standing on the banks of the Jordan, ready to go into the promised land, ready to face hardship, ready to fight for this land that God has given them. They've been 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around that in the wilderness, what seems to be pointlessness. I want you to just really listen to these five verses. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Moses says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger. Make sure your theology has that. He let them hunger. But then what? And he fed you with manna. Hunger fed. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, in order that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out on you. Your foot did not swell these 40 years. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Think about this. Here they are, 40 years in the wilderness, going around, hungry, fed, hungry, fed, wax on, wax off. God, I have a need. I'm hungry. I'm not able to provide for myself. The land won't sustain agriculture and food. I'm providing for you. Why? Why did it say he provided manna? So that you'd know that you live by the word of God. I'm teaching you. I'm training you so that when you enter the promised land, the day the manna stops, the day they cross the Jordan, no more manna. What's been their pattern? I'm hungry. I need God. I'm hungry. I need God. I cross into that land, I'm hungry. God, where are you? I don't see the manna. Now you've been fed by my word. Now take the land, grow, mature. I'm disciplining you through the hardship of the wilderness, through the hardship that the 
the receivers of the book of Hebrews were experiencing, God is training and disciplining them to know the Lord their God. I don't know exactly what your hardship will look like. All of us will have it. Physically, we'll have hardships. Relationally, there will be, if you are following Jesus Christ, there will be hard things. It was not meant to be easy because you were meant to go through hard things in order to know the Lord. Does that make the hard things themselves good? No. Jesus despised the shame of the, the cross. Yet he said, God, you're training me, not my will, but your will be done in my life. The method of discipline, while varied for each of us, is hardship. And for some of you all, I know it's hard. You're going through things I can't imagine. The Lord has not left you and he's not punishing you if you will stay under his loving hand. I don't know when it'll end. I can't tell you that. I don't know, but I know something that the road's going to curve at some point and things will line up. I wish I could give you a date. I wish I could give you an hour. Don't let go of your faith. It's going to sustain you, not punish you. Finally, the payoff besides, in addition to knowing the Lord your God, which is a payoff in and of itself. But beyond that, he talks about, therefore, verse 12, he says, lift up this drooping hand, strengthen your weak knees. They were weak. They were struggling as a people. And he says, so, so strengthen yourself, make, make things straight. And then he, he encourages them and he says, strive for peace, for holiness, without which no one, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That word, that root of bitterness word comes from Deuteronomy chapter 29. And again, this same series that Moses is talking to the people and encouraging them right before they go into the land. Hardship is an opportunity for community to share burden together so that people don't turn away from the Lord but turn to the Lord in the fellowship of the saints. So here's the, where they get that root of bitterness uh, language from. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, he's encouraging people. He says, beware lest there be, any, uh, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Because when they entered into the promised land, it was a pluralistic place. Lots of people, all the ites, right? The ites that lived in the land, Hittites, and all of them worshiped other gods. And he says, watch out for each other that you don't turn away from the one true God to go and serve the gods that the other people worshiped. He says, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. In our yard, we have nutsedge, which uh, is this like grassy, weedy stuff. And it's uh, it's what's called a rhizome, which means underneath the ground, the the, the root spreads like 10 feet. And then every few inches, one of these things will shoot up. But the root is all one root. 
So it's, it's frustrating because you think you kill one and all it laughs at you because you've just killed the little piece, but the, you have, it's not one root. It's, it's a huge root that goes under the whole thing. And what I think that's a great picture, the root of bitterness that runs when we say there, there can't be a sun setting on this side and a sign going this way. It can't be true. There can't be a God. There can't be loving discipline. There can't be that. And we begin to have this root of bitterness that can poison an entire community. You have a voice that stands up and says, there is no God. I tried it. I tried Christianity. I tried Jesus. And he failed because I trusted him and this person died. I trusted him and I got sick. I trusted him and he didn't happen for me. And the poison of the root of bitterness begins to spring up. And many people can say, I, I, I don't know. I guess when I go through, maybe there isn't a God. And the counsel of Moses in Deuteronomy and the writer of Hebrews is, hold on. The discipline of the Lord, these things that we can't see, they're not good. And I don't mean to insinuate that the things that happen in life are good, but in a broken and sinful world, if the fairy tale I want to get us away from is that no bad thing will ever happen to you. And somehow we have to reconcile that on one side bad things happen, on the other side there is a good and loving and caring God who has not left you. And as mature Christians, we have got to wrestle with that. And we've got to come out, and, and the maturity that he will bring us through is to say, and we're going to get to this next week as we close, is that, look, if you are clinging on, to a false God and a false hope of a fairy tale, when things get real and all is shaken away, you'll be holding on to something that won't last. But that the grace and mercy of God is that he's going to shake away everything that's going to go away anyway, and you're going to figure out what's everlasting and eternal. And that's a blessing, and that will be a blessing for your entire life if you know what lasts and what doesn't. Last thing as we, as we close here. He refers to Esau, and it can seem a little out of left field and a little strange. You can go back if you've got your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, and he talks after the root of bitterness, and he says, I also don't want you to be like Esau, calls Esau sexually immoral. We don't know from a story in Scripture necessarily he married pagan-wise, but we don't know that that's what he's referring to. But somehow in the tradition, the writer is referring to him as unholy, sexually immoral. But we do know from the story that he sold his birthright for a single meal. And then when you know afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he could not. What is this about? Esau is the oldest son. In that generation, the oldest son inherits everything. That's how families kept their fortunes together. If you split it up the way we do now and give each child something because their fortunes were locked into land and other things, you would split and you would in family done through one and you continued to build your family's wealth that, that way. 
Esau was the oldest son. He was to inherit everything. And in a moment where the hardship came on him and he was hungry and it says, I'm going to die. In the story, he says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. His short-term need seemed so acute to him and was going to overwhelm his ability to see anything else that he sells everything and he sells to Jacob, the deceiver, but he sells to his younger brother the birthright. And he says, don't be like that. Don't let the hardship of the moment, I know it seems hard, But don't give up your birthright. Next week, as we talk about the shaping, he's going to say, he speaks to the church of elder brothers. That's every one of you, brothers and sisters. Every one of you inherits the birthright. You inherit the great. But don't sell out before the road curves and things begin to line up. I wish I could tell you it would always happen in this life. Sometimes it does. But God is just and he's holy. And we don't want to be that short-sighted Esau for the immediate pleasure giving up what's going to be really good for us in the eternal. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, it was hard to receive discipline as a child because from my childish perspective, it was really hard to see the good that it was shaping character. It was hard to see that it was going to prevent me. My parents' discipline was going to prevent me from walking out into the street to get hit by the car. I just knew that I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. Grow us up as Christians, Lord, that we don't want what we want when we want it and sell you short of being a God who disciplines out of love. Lord, we acknowledge that it's not pleasant. Your scripture teaches it plainly, all discipline. It's not pleasant but painful, but in being trained by it, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Lord, so we acknowledge the reality of the pain, the hunger, but Lord, we want to go through it with a sense of looking for where you are, of seeing you, and of believing you to be a God who will not leave us abandoned, who won't tempt us beyond what you're able, though I know sometimes it seems like that. Encourage us today, Lord, to cling to you, to look to you, and to believe you, to shape us as well as to move in mighty power in our circumstances. Hold on to us, Lord, when the ground is shaking. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.